right, good morning. We apologize if it gets a little warm in here. The AC went out yesterday, and so we, we tried our best to try to cool this off with some fans for you. Uh, but just remember, there are individuals in China who die for the privilege of gathering together like we have right here, right now. And so uh, I, I pray that as we open God's word, that uh, minds will be renewed and hearts will be transformed. And I pray we get a beautiful picture of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is as we continue in our sermon series, uh, Greater Than, as we study through the book of Hebrews. And so today we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 8. We're going to look at uh, both of those chapters uh, today. There are four things that I want to show you in God's text. Now, sometimes it takes me an hour to show you three things. So we, we, may, be, we may be in trouble today, but I believe that God is going to really bless you with the contents of these two chapters of his word. And so I've entitled today's message, The Greater Mediator, uh, Part 1. Uh, there, there's three parts to this one, okay? So we're going to look at chapter 7 and 8 this morning. Then we're going to look at chapter 9 next week and then chapter 10 the following week where the author of Hebrews really settles in on this idea of Jesus Christ being our great high priest and the implication that that has for each and every one of our lives as we live out in this broken world uh, understanding that God is perfect and holy and our sin separates us from him. Now, I don't know what it is about bridges, but for whatever reason, I have a fascination with bridges. Uh, I, 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 they, I just marvel at the idea of bridges. When I was a, a kid, uh, there, wasn't, uh, uh, there was a park that wasn't far from us, and there was a little creek that, that you had to traverse to get to that park, and it had this little suspension bridge there that you could walk across, and I was always fascinated with that bridge. There's just something about bridges, and you see some of those magnificent uh, works of Technology and engineering, the Golden, Great, Golden Gate Bridge, the, the Brooklyn Bridge, this, this ability that man has created to be able to gulf a, a chasm, to be able to traverse it, to be able to connect one point to another. Now, in the Roman world, a priest, in the Greco-Roman world, a priest was given the name Pontifex. And we've seen this idea of pontifex, two words combined together, and basically it means a bridge maker. So the idea of a priest was really one that made a bridge. It made a bridge between man and in the Greco-Roman world, the gods. We see in Roman Catholicism that the Pope is established the, the name or given the name uh, Pontifex Maximus, the supreme bridge maker. But the truth of the matter is, as we see in Scripture, that only Jesus Christ is a supreme bridge maker. He and he alone. He and he alone is the one that can bridge sinful man to a holy God. He is our great high priest. He is not the shadow of, he is not just a picture of, but he himself is our great high priest. 
that there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. We try all the time to build different bridges to a perfect and a holy God. But what we'll see in the text is that each and every one of those measures fails because there was only one that was meant to be the bridge between our sin and sinful man and a perfect and a holy God. Only one that can bridge that that chasm that our sin creates uh, for us and in us. And so as you've opened your Bible, in chapter 7, we see right out of the gate that he's finally getting to the point that he's really been working up and trying to get to as he's been talking about this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned only one time in the Old Testament. Outside of the book of Hebrews, he's only mentioned once, and it's in Genesis 14, where there was this battle between four kings and five kings, and the kings from the east came and defeated the kings in the Jordanian Valley, and where Sodom was, and they took captive uh, all the individuals that were in and living in Sodom. One of those individuals was Lot. So Abram, or Abraham as he would later be called, he gathered 318 fighting men and he went out and defeated the kings that had defeated the, the kings in the Jordanian Valley and took in the, the individuals captive, including Lot. And when he comes back, the king of Sodom comes to meet him along with this individual named Melchizedek. And when Abraham encounters Melchizedek, he gives him a tenth of the spoils and Melchizedek blesses him, and they sit down and they have bread and, and, and wine. Now, I believe that what we see in Melchizedek is a picture of who Jesus Christ is. And so, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we see the pictured high priest. All throughout the Old Testament, God gives us Easter eggs pointing us to the New Testament. In, in movies, if you watch the Marvel movies, you watch uh, some other type of movies that have different trilogies or different storylines that continue, that, that continue on and on. In some of the older movies, you'll see them foreshadowing another movie, giving you a glimpse of what is to come, and those things are called Easter eggs. That what you find in those movies are these little hidden things called Easter eggs. In the Old Testament, it is filled with Easter eggs that are pointing us to Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus Christ is going to do on the cross. Melchizedek is an Easter egg in the Old Testament giving us a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to come. Now, he is only a picture. We see in verse 3, look, at, look with me in verse 3 of chapter 7. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He is a picture. He's giving us a picture of who Jesus is going to be. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to get to is I want to tell you about this great high priest. And the best way I can do it is through pointing out the Easter egg of Melchizedek and how he points us to Jesus Christ. So exactly how does this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, point us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, first and foremost, in, in verse 1, we see, For this Melchizedek, king of Solomon, priest of the Most High God. In, in the Jewish faith, 
The people of God, they had a king and they had a priest and there was never to be one in the same. The king was never to take on priestly duties and the priests were never to take on kingly duties. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel 13 about King Saul doing just that. Samuel told him before he went into battle, he was to wait and seven days Samuel would come and he would offer the sacrifices to God Almighty. But when uh, Samuel didn't show up exactly when he thought, when Saul thought he should show up, he took upon himself the role of priest. And as a result, he was rejected by God to be king over God's people. Those roles were never to be in one person. The only time we see those roles in one person where God affirms that is in Melchizedek. It is a foreshadowing of the reality that Jesus Christ is both king and he is priest. He is king of kings and he's lord of lords, but he's also our great high priest. But not only that, the author of Hebrews shows us that even in the name himself of Melchizedek is pointing to the reality of who Jesus Christ is for us. Look at verse 2 where it says, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That, that's what his name means. Uh, Melchizedek means that he is king of righteousness. Now, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God Almighty. All the good that you can muster up, all of the things that you can do in and of yourself before a perfect and a holy God, God's word says in the book of Isaiah that they are like polluted garments. They are like filthy rags. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is actually righteousness incarnate. It's righteousness in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ is wisdom. Jesus Christ is righteousness. Jesus Christ is our sanctification. Jesus Christ is our redemption. He himself is righteousness. So the author of Hebrews is pointing through Melchizedek and his very name, the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who will be our righteousness. For all those who've called upon the name of the Lord and placed their faith in Christ Jesus, they have been made the righteousness of God because the righteousness of Christ has been bestowed upon them. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16 speaks of this reality as well. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That Jesus Christ is our righteousness. But not only that, he is our peace. In verse 2 it goes on to say, and then he is also king of Salem. Now, Salem would later on be purchased from the Jesuits by David and would become Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace. And David would be the, the king over Jerusalem, foreshadowing the king of kings and the Lord of lords who would inaugurate the new Jerusalem that was to come. 
He is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Ephesians 2.14 speaks of the reality that Jesus Christ is our peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you are looking for peace in your life, if you're looking for peace in your marriage, if you're looking for peace in your relationships, if you're looking for peace with your own soul, I want you to understand that apart from Jesus Christ, you will never find it. The world, the world will try to synthesize it. The world will, will, will try to give you a cheap knockoff of it. But the reality is the only true peace is to be found in Christ Jesus. And ultimately, we see the foreshadowing of that reality. The Author of Hebrews also goes on to show us in verse 3 the reality that Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. That doesn't mean that Melchizedek wasn't born, wasn't a real man. Some individuals will say this is a, 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 a pre-incarnate picture of, of Christ, that this is a Christology, that we see Jesus Christ before his incarnation here. This isn't an angel. This is an actual man. I think Charles Swindoll says it best. What Melchizedek is in the narrative, Jesus Christ is in his nature. The Holy Spirit produced in us or produced in the, the, the author of, of Genesis, produced in Moses, to just pick up the story and not give any ge genealogy of Melchizedek because, again, he's foreshadowing Jesus Christ who has no beginning, who has no end. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. So we see this reality that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is eternal, that he has no start, that he has no end. Psalm 90 verses 1 through 2 speak of this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 1 Timothy 1.17 speaks of this reality of our Savior. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. What a beautiful reality that is for us to understand and to wrap our hearts and our minds around that we have an eternal king. We don't vote on it every four years. Amen. Praise the Lord. We don't have to vote on that every four years. It's a reality. It's a constant. He is an eternal king. He's always been king. There's never been a time that he hasn't been king. No beginning and no end. So the author of Hebrews takes all of this and he takes the reality that we see in the scriptures that this group of individuals would have known so well of the Old Testament and the fact that when Abraham encountered Melchizedek, he gave him a, a tithe. He gave him a tenth of all the spoils of the war that he brought back. And as a result, he was blessed by Melchizedek. And so what he's trying to show is that the line of Melchizedek is superior to the line of Aaron. So all of the high priests of Judah and Israel, all of the high priests, they had to come from the, the line of, of Aaron and the line of Levi. All the priests had to be from the line of Levi and, and the, the, the line of Aaron. 
And what he's trying to show is that the line of Melchizedek is superior to the line of the Levites. That's why he says, but this man who does not have his descent from the received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, it is beyond dispute, verse 7, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In other words, he was still a twinkle in his daddy's eye. And what he's saying is that because Abraham acknowledged the greatness of Melchizedek and paid a tithe to him and was blessed, it shows the superiority of the line of Melchizedek over the line of Levi. Now, that's going to be important because he's going to go on to say here in just a little bit that Jesus Christ doesn't come from the line of Levi. He comes from the line of Judah. But he comes as one in the order of Melchizedek because he is both king, he's both priest, he's righteousness, he's peace. Uh, he is uh, superior in every way for he has no start and no ending. So Melchizedek gives us a picture of the great bridge maker. He is not the bridge maker. He gives us a picture of the great bridge maker. Now, jump with me down to the next section, verses 11 through 28. And what we see is that the great bridge maker, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is the perfect high priest. He is perfect in every way. Verse 11 says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? In other words, what initially was instituted was insufficient. It had flaws. But the reason why it was insufficient and had flaws is not because God intended for those individuals to be perfect, but because he knew that they weren't, they were to show us the inability of those bridge makers to truly bridge the chasm and the gap that existed between sinful man and a holy God and was showing us our great need for somebody else to be that bridge maker and to fill that gap for us. And so we see this reality in verse 18 of chapter 7. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. In other words, it was a temporary solution to an eternal problem. When individuals sinned in the Old Testament, they would go to the temple and they would sacrifice a lamb, they would sacrifice an animal according to the Old Testament sacrificial system, and that would cover them and that sin until they made another one. Then they had to keep doing it. And so they had to continue to sacrifice animal after animal for their sin, constantly sacrificing animal after animal because it was showing them their great need for that one great sacrifice that ultimately Jesus Christ would make for each and every one of us. Now, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest, and he brings in and ushers in a better hope. We see that in verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
There is a better hope. There's a better hope than, than maybe I can just atone for this one sin and I can make it maybe just a little bit further down the road before I make another sin and then I can go back and I can get that atoned for. But there, there, is, a, there is a better hope that we find in Christ Jesus in the Old Testament sacrificial system because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died for all, once for all, and when you place your faith in him, you are forgiven of all of your sins. We have a better hope. We have eternal life that is secured for us in Christ Jesus. But it goes on to say in verse 22 of chapter 7, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, that he is the high priest and the mediator of a better covenant, that the old covenant that was established by God and the people of Israel was insufficient in and of itself because it was not built upon the covenant that would be established by the blood of Christ Jesus. And so we see that he is the high priest over a better covenant, an eternal covenant that is established with all those who will place their faith in Christ Jesus. It's not hereditary. It's not about whether or not you were born a Jew. It's not based on any of those things whatsoever. It's based solely upon have you placed your faith in Christ Jesus. Then we read of the reality of chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So not only does Jesus Christ, the mediator over this new covenant, give us a better hope. Not only does he give us a better covenant, but that covenant is based upon better promises. The Old Testament promises of the covenantal uh, agreement between God and his people was all earthly. To Abraham, it was, I was going to give you a bunch of children, and I was going to make the nation of Israel very, very wealthy, and I was going to build you up. It was all earthly promises. But what Jesus Christ gives us is spiritual promises. He gives us treasures in heaven where moth can't eat and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. He gives us true, better promises that have eternal implications that aren't just for this life here on this earth, but have eternal implications in each and every one of those promises. Now we come to the crux of what I believe is the very heart of the book of Hebrews. And that's verse 25 of Hebrews 7. I believe this is the very heart of what it is the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. If you want the Cliff Notes version of Hebrews, you say, man, we're, we're, we're doing a 13-week series. You could have just preached on Hebrews 7.25, and man, we could have gone on about our business. You wouldn't have got the depths of the entire book, but let me give you the Cliff Notes version. Of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, what he's saying is that he and that he is able is this individual we've been looking at over these past few weeks. The one that is greater than every other person. The one that is greater than every other thing. He is able to save. That speaks of the reality that there are individuals that need to be saved. I think we live in a world that fails to acknowledge the dire strait that they find themselves in. 
that they are walking towards a chasm where there is no bridge and they are going to fall off of the edge and they are going to be separated from God for all of eternity. And each and every one of us that have experienced the grace and the mercy of God Almighty ought to be standing, waving our heads, saying, don't go that way. That bridge is out. Don't go this direction. That leads to nothing but death because there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. But guess what? He can save. And save to what? Save to the uttermost. In other words, completely. Save absolutely. Save to the umph degree that he can save to the uttermost. I don't care who you are. I encounter so many individuals that think, yeah, but you don't know what it is that I've done. You don't know where it is that I've been. You don't know all of the pain that I've caused. You don't know all the suffering that I've endured. You don't know what's happened to me, and you don't know what I've done to other individuals. God surely can't save me. And God's word says that he can save to the uttermost. To the most depraved individual, to the most lost soul, if they will but repent of their sin, Jesus Christ will save them because his blood is more powerful than any sin. He will save to the uttermost. But guess what? Those that draw near to God through him because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God except what? Through him. Because he is the bridge. He himself is a bridge. He's not just a bridge maker. He himself is the bridge. He willingly laid down his life so that we could bridge the chasm in faith. Some of my favorite movies are Indiana Jones. Love Indiana Jones. Love that dude. Man, love the fedora. And the, I mean, is there any cooler of a character than Indiana Jones? You remember in The Last Crusade? He made it past the Pennington man. And he starts walking down the tunnel and he comes to that, that chasm. Now, he, he, his daddy's dying. Sean Connery's down there. He's dying. We got to save Sean Connery. We got to save him. And he comes to this chasm. And what does he do? He says, it's, this is impossible. Nobody can jump this far. There's deep theological truth. Indiana Jones, I mean, just a deep theologian. Nobody can jump this. Nobody can bridge this chasm. I know I got to get over to that other side, but there's no way physically possible I can get from here to there. And they cut to Sean Connery. He's laying down and he says, you just got to believe, son. I can't do the Scottish accent, but you just got to believe, son. <laughs> and what does he do? He says, it's a leap of faith. And he does that real dramatic kind of pause with his foot. And he steps out in the worst CGI that they, I mean, it's just bad CGI. He steps out and it holds him up. Why? Because he took a step of faith. That is what each and every one of us must understand. You cannot in and of yourself get out of your sin to where a perfect and a holy God is. There's absolutely no way that you can do it in and of yourself. You can't jump far enough. You can't build it long enough. You must take a step of faith relying upon the work of Jesus Christ to hold you up. And when you place your faith in Christ Jesus, that's exactly what he does because he will save to the uttermost and he will allow you to come across through him by your faith because of his atoning work on the cross. Amen? 
That's the reality that we see. He saves to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him since, we all, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. And that brings us to our third point, the reality that he is the permanent high priest. He's the permanent bridge. This bridge ain't going to wash out. This bridge ain't going to go away. This bridge isn't going to deteriorate. This bridge isn't going to rust. This bridge isn't going to fall. This bridge is permanent for each and every individual that steps out in faith upon it. In verse 18 of chapter 7, we, or excuse me, verse 16 of chapter 7, it says, Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life? That Jesus Christ is alive. The reason why it's a better hope is because the hope is based upon the second member of the Holy Trinity who is our living hope. That he is alive as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's an indestructible life. Look at verse 27 of chapter 7. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus Christ made atonement for our sins once and for all. That when he died on the cross, he atoned for everybody's sins that will place their faith in Christ Jesus. And that's for everybody. Don't let anybody try to teach you something different. That Christ only died for some. He died for everybody. Everybody has access to forgiveness, but the application is only applied to those that come in faith. There's a huge difference. Some people will say that Jesus Christ only died on the cross for a select group of individuals. No, 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 no. He died for everybody. He died for everybody that has ever existed. There is access to Christ through his atonement on the cross. But that blood of Christ is only applied to the doorpost of your life when you step out in faith. There's a difference between access and application. We're not universalists. We don't say that Christ died for everybody so everybody gets to go to heaven. No, no, no. Only those that have the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost and the lintel of their life are granted eternal life. Only they will have the death angel pass over them on the day of judgment. But everybody has access to the life-giving water that is Christ Jesus. I love this in verse 12 of chapter 8. God speaking says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. He says, I'll remember your sins no more. N not because I, I, I can't, not because I'm forgetful, but because out of my great love for you and your faith in Christ Jesus, I choose not to remember your sins anymore. Now, how many of you in this room, keep going back to those old sins. Oh, God, but this is who, this is who I am. God, this is what I, 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 this is me. And this sin and this fault and this, this failure. And, and you just wallow in it and you just, you just sit down in it. Christ said, what are you doing there, my son? What are you doing there, my daughter? Well, Lord, remember when I didn't, no, I don't. I don't remember that. I remember my son Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you, though. I remember you taking that step of faith out upon that bridge. And when I see you, I see my son Jesus Christ and all of his redeeming work. Don't go back and sit down in that old way of life because guess what? The old is gone and the new has come.
You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Don't go back. Don't return back to that. That's not who you are in Christ Jesus. I love what verse 13 says. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What Christ Jesus does for us never becomes obsolete. Anybody got old vinyl record player? Anybody got the old vinyl or remember the old vinyl record player? You know, every, nothing new under the sun. It kind of makes a comeback. It's trendy. Everything is, you see people dressing like the 80s now. You know what I'm saying? It's like that went out of style for a reason. You know what I'm saying? But okay, hey, bring it back. Bring it back. You know, do, do your thing. That old vinyl gave way to the eight track. Some of you know the eight track. Some, yeah, I just got, I just got a little bit over here. Some of y'all remember the 8-track. And the 8-track gave way to the cassette tape. Now, I'm a cassette. That's about when I started coming up. Boy, the cassette tape. I had my little case that had the little slots in it. Big old case. Had them alphabetized because that's how I got down. It get messed up. What you go do? You go get your pencil. Put it right in there. Rewind that sucker. When the hot five at five came on, you grabbed, if you, if you had it like that, you, you took two stereos, you recorded one, you took the other radio, put it right up there so you could get that brand new song recorded on the tape so you'd have it and you didn't have to go buy the tape just to have one song. Buy the whole tape for that one song? No. I'll wait for the hot five at five. And mama better not come in that room talking because she'll mess it up. And the tape cassettes gave way to the CDs. Boy, when the CDs came out, you could skip a song. You didn't have to wait. Oh, I fast forward too much. Oh, I re got rewired. You, you didn't have to do that. You go right to that song. And now I didn't have the little case with the slot. I had the notebook. <laughs> and it was like a competition between you and your friends with the notebook, wasn't it? Man, look what I got that new CD. Look at that. Added to the collection. The CDs gave way. To digital downloads. See, everything that is created by man becomes obsolete. Everything that man creates, later on, it becomes obsolete and there's something else that is built upon that. That is not the case with our salvation in Christ Jesus. That's not the case with the covenant that has been established for us by the blood shed on the cross by Jesus Christ. That never becomes obsolete. That never becomes old. That is always the same. We're not waiting on another hope. We're not waiting on another promise. We're not waiting on another covenant. The very things that the saints of the Old Testament were looking forward to see, we're looking in the rearview mirror at. And each and every one of us should take hold of that and live our lives out in such a way that we bring him glory and we see the great need of us linking hands with him because he's the only one that can place our hands in God's hands because he's the great mediator. He and he alone. Now, here's the last thing that I want to show you in verse 11. This bridge maker who is perfect, this bridge maker who is permanent, he's also personal. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, in other words, I don't got to come to you and, and, and say, for those that are in Christ Jesus, I don't have to come to you and say, hey, 
do you, do you, you know, Jesus, let me tell you, let me tell you about Jesus. I, I want to introduce you. I know him real well. Let me explain him to you. And you can know him through me. No, no, no. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It says, they will know the Lord for they shall all know me. Now, that word is a very intimate picture to know. In the Bible, to know someone was usually speaking of a marital status of that marriage being consummated, that Adam knew his wife Eve. It's talking about a very intimate relationship. The question is, not do you have facts about Jesus Christ? Not, not do you have facts about him being the great high priest? The, the question is, do you truly know him as a Lord and Savior of your life? Do you have an intimate relationship with him? Look, I love sports. I, I, I can tell, I, I know a lot of, of useless sports stats. One of my favorite sports is college football. Unfortunately, I'm from Texas. And they let me down a lot. Thank you for all those of you that checked on me around 3.30 yesterday. <laughs> I'm sure it was very sincere. <laughs> Your desire to know how I was. Not good at all. Look, I know a lot of stats about Sam Ellinger. I, I, know, I know a lot of stats about him. But if I walked up to Sam Ellinger, he wouldn't know me from Adam, pun totally included. <laughs> he, he wouldn't know me. Now, I know a lot about him, but we don't have a relationship together. The question is, right here in this moment, each and every one of you have to establish, do you truly know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life? Do you know him? Have you placed your faith in him? Are you banking your eternity on head knowledge or your own self-righteousness, your own good works, your own good deeds? Let me give you one last illustration. A couple of years ago, I was with my daughter, and we were, we were at First Baptist Broken Arrow, and I was up there on, on a Saturday. For whatever reason, we, we were up there, and she was, she was with me, and... I had to do something up there, and then I went into the worship center, and I, I started praying. I got down to the, the kneeling bench there, the prayer bench right there at the front, and I, I just started praying. Started praying for my daughter. She's, she was running around just kind of doing, doing her thing, but I was praying for her. I was praying for my family. Every Saturday night, me and my wife, we come up here, and we pray over these seats. We pray over this sanctuary. We come, and we pray for these services. Every Saturday night, we come up here, and we pray for what God is going to do in here. That Saturday, it was just me and my daughter, and I started praying. I started praying for our church and started praying for what God wanted to do in the life of our church and our family. And my daughter was kind of running around, and so I, I went back. I went up on stage, which is a little, little taller than this. And I said, baby girl, come here. I want to I do an illustration with you. I want to teach you about how we can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I said, I want you to stand right here at the bottom of these steps. And so she stood there, all of about five years old, just looking up at her daddy. 
And I said, I want you to come from down there to up here, but you can't touch any part of the stairs and you can't touch any part of the railing. You've got to get from there up here without touching any of the stairs or any of the railing. She looked for a second. You could tell the wheels were starting to turn a little bit like, huh? I can't touch the stairs. I can't touch the railing. She tested me a little bit, tried to step up on the stairs. I said, no, 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 baby. You can't touch the stairs, and you can't touch the railing. But you got to get from down there to up here. You could tell wheels were turning a little bit. She, she, she kind of understood that that seemed impossible. And so I stood there for a little bit, and she's five, so she lost interest pretty quick, and she started running around, you know. And she would come back, and you could tell, you know, in her mind, she's like developing some wily coyote type contraption that she was going to be able to come up and so she'd run around a little bit more and man I was not giving up on this illustration I just stayed up there and finally she came there and she said daddy can we go and I said no baby girl I want to teach you something about God this is so important I need you to understand this reality how can you get from down there to up here without touching any of the steps or any of the railing she said daddy can you help me? I walked down those steps and I took my baby girl in my arms and I walked back up those steps and she made it from down there to up here without touching one step or doing anything in and of herself other than crying out, Daddy, can you help me? Have you cried out to your heavenly father? and said, Daddy, can you help me? Daddy, can you save me? I'm down here, but I don't want to remain down here in this darkness. I don't want to remain down here in this sin. I don't want to remain down here in the brokenness of my life. I want to be up there where you are. God, can you help me? And if you'll place your faith in Christ Jesus, he says that he will come down into the muck and the mire of your life. He will pull you out of that darkness. He will cleanse you off. He will give you his righteousness that he will bring you with him and that you will spend eternity with him. Have you called out to your heavenly father for help?